We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. And away we go, episode 81 of the Al Galdi podcast. Yes, 81, Art Monk's number. We've reached that number on the Al Galdi podcast. It is Thursday, June 10th, 2021. Has Montez Sweat gotten his COVID-19 vaccine yet? I mean, let's just get right into this, okay? Has Montez Sweat gotten vaccinated yet? Should we start a countdown for this? We could call it... The COVID-19 shot clock, a shot clock of shame. Who knew that Montez Sweat's name would be trending on Twitter on Wednesday? Who knew that Montez Sweat would become a hot button name on Wednesday? But such is life with the Washington football team. You never know when someone or something will become a big deal. Montez Sweat's stance on getting vaccinated for COVID-19 became a big deal on Wednesday. You see, I on Wednesday's installment of the podcast talked about Chase Young being a big deal. His edge rushing tag team partner, Montez Sweat, became a big deal on Wednesday. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Really? People know me. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Ron Burgundy. Hello, and welcome to another installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I will not be shaming Montez Sweat on this show. If that disappoints you, I'm sorry. I put out a tweet off what Sweat said on Wednesday. My Twitter mentions will never be the same. Uh, People who didn't know each other engaged in these contentious, combative conversations about what Sweat said and the virus and getting vaccines and science and on and on and on. You know how it goes. I blame myself. I should have seen that coming. Anyway, I will give you my take off what Montez Sweat said coming up 
in just a bit. I'll also be discussing plenty of football. Is that okay with everyone? We talk football on the show. Uh, Washington football team football, to be exact, is Wednesday was day two of the mandatory minicamp. What will be a three-day minicamp. Ron Rivera is not doing the Jay Gruden thing of canceling the third day of the minicamp. Jay did that like every year when he was Washington head coach. Washington's final minicamp practice due to take place Thursday morning from 9.30 to 11.30. And then that's it, the lengthy break before training camp begins. But coming up on the show will be a Jonathan Allen conversation. He spoke via press conference on Wednesday, addressed his contract situation. I want to talk about that and why Allen should be signed to a long-term contract extension this offseason. Also, I'll go through the best of what Ron Rivera said on Wednesday at his post-practice press conference, including what he said about the biggest questions for Washington for the upcoming season and the notion of Washington having an elite defense in the 2021 season. This is where you want to be if you're a Washington football team fan. I promise you that. No fluff on this podcast. You can get fluff elsewhere. There are plenty of fluffers elsewhere. Uh, Let them fluff all they want. The best WFT coverage is on this podcast. I will talk Nationals, an actual win for the Nats on Wednesday night, a 9-7, 11-inning win at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays. The Nats did all they could to lose that game, okay? And if you watch the game, you know of what I speak. Nats blew a 5-3, 7th-inning lead, blew a 7-5, 10th-inning lead, but the boys battled, as Davey Martinez likes to say, and the boys won. A lot to talk about with the Nats. I'll talk about them later in the show. And I will talk Orioles, a 14-1. Loss for the O's to the National League East leading New York Mets at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday night as Matt Harvey, the former Met, got shelled again. Brandon Hyde said there's no talk of taking Harvey out of the rotation. Uh, My rear end, there better be. He's horrible right now, and him as an Oriole is going nowhere. Before we go any further, can I ask a question? It is rhetorical, but how about old Trotsy? Huh? I mean, did that not sting if you're a Capitals fan on Wednesday night? I know it stung me as a lifelong Caps fan. The former Caps head coach, Barry Trotz, you know, the man who led the Caps to a Stanley Cup title in 2018 and then was not brought back as Caps head coach for the following season. That guy has the New York Islanders now in the Eastern Conference Final. A 6-2 win over the Boston Bruins on Wednesday night to win that Eastern Conference semifinal series four games to two. The Islanders now have won five playoff series over the first three seasons with Trotz as head coach. The Islanders had won five playoff series over the previous 34 seasons combined. The Caps, meantime, they have been, as you may know, eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs each of the last three seasons. Uh, Yeah, you didn't need me to tell you that the decision to allow Trotz to leave as head coach after the 2018 Stanley Cup championship was the wrong one, but that has been heightened even further with the Isles now in the NHL's Final Four. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Joel Charney. Love the show. Thank you, Joel. Listening every day. Thank you, Joel. I find myself unable to shake the theme music. It pops into my head at random times throughout the day and night. Is that a good thing? Joel, that is an excellent thing. In fact, I'm not sure I can think of anything better when it comes to your affection for the podcast than the theme song being in your head, stuck in your head, and you can't get rid of it, man. No matter what you do, that bad boy ain't going away. Well, your continued support of this podcast 
is appreciated. If you're not already a subscriber to the pod, please consider subscribing. Doesn't cost you anything. Also, if you have the time, and this doesn't take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating. Just write like a one-sentence review as well. Doing those things helps out the podcast a lot. All right, before we get to Montez Sweat and COVID Gate, can we please talk some Jonathan Allen? When it comes to contract situations for the Washington football team, the contract situation that has gotten the most attention this offseason clearly has been the Brandon Sheriff situation. But at the end of the day, he is a guard. The other one's a guard. Yes, Jay. And while the Brandon Sheriff contract situation matters, you could very much make the case that the more important contract situation for Washington right now is the Jonathan Allen contract situation. Jonathan Allen is entering his age 26 season and a contract season. He is set to play under the terms of the fifth-year option in his rookie contract. Washington exercised that option in April 2020. Now, Allen spoke on Wednesday in a press conference after Washington's minicamp practice, didn't have that much to say about contract negotiations, said that they could go either way in terms of reaching a deal prior to the start of the upcoming season, did say that both sides right now are negotiating in good faith. Now, if you're worried about Washington not yet having signed Allen to a contract extension, I hear you, but understand that contract extensions take time and can be reached late in off-seasons. If you go back and look at when recent significant contract extensions for Washington players have gotten done, the Ryan Kerrigan big money contract extension was not reached until late July 2015. We're not there yet, right? We're not in late July yet. The Trent Williams mega money contract extension was not reached until late August 2015. We're obviously not into late August yet. Now, others have been reached by now in other off seasons. The Jordan Reed contract extension was done in May 2016. The Morgan Moses contract extension was done by late April 2017. So you would like for this Allen deal to have gotten done. It has not yet gotten done. I do wonder with Jonathan Allen, as I have wondered with Brandon Sheriff, to what extent truly is there impetus on the player side to get a deal done? The salary cap sunk for this upcoming season because of the COVID-19 pandemic. The cap is set to skyrocket in future seasons. If you're Sheriff, if you're Allen, why wouldn't you wait until after this season when the cap goes back up to do a long-term contract? So long as you believe in yourself and that you're going to have a good 2021 season, why not just play out your contract, potentially be franchised for the 2022 season if you're Jonathan Allen, but at the very least see to what degree the cap goes up for next season and what exactly might we be looking at in terms of this rising cap so you can get a better sense on what you should be asking for in contract extension negotiation. So I'm not sure how much motivation truly there is on the player side right now to get a long-term contract extension done. But to me, signing Jonathan Allen to a contract extension should be a priority. And I do believe that it is. Uh, Is Jonathan Allen an elite interior defensive lineman? No, I would not say that. But is Jonathan Allen a good, if not very good, interior defensive lineman? Yes, I would say that. Pro football focus grades are not everything. More on that when we hear from Ron Rivera later in the show. But check this out. Allen in the 2020 regular season had an overall grade for pro football focus of 80.3. Deron Payne's overall grade for the 2020 regular season for pro football focus was just 68.2. For PFF, it wasn't close last season when it came to who was better, Allen versus Payne. 
Do I think that Allen is that much better than Payne? No, I don't. But for those of you who don't think that Allen is that good, I would urge you to think again. Allen last regular season was number five on Washington in defensive snaps at 77.42%. This for a Washington defense that made major across-the-board improvements from the 2019 regular season. We talked about this at length on Wednesday's installment of the podcast and our Chase Young discussion. Washington was so much better defensively last season as compared to the 2019 season. I really felt going into last season like that season was a referendum on Jonathan Allen, on Deron Payne, from a standpoint of, hey, we've heard the hype for these guys for years. They've been good players, but not necessarily great players. They certainly have never been a part of a truly good Washington defense. If Washington continues to struggle defensively with the new scheme, under the new staff, maybe we have to start questioning these players. And maybe it's not necessarily Greg Minuski's fault that the Washington defense was not so good in 2018 and 2019. Maybe just maybe these players aren't that good. Well, that conversation was taken off the table with what Washington did defensively in the 2020 season. And Jonathan Allen was a big part of that. Again, number five on Washington in defensive snaps last regular season. Also, Jonathan Allen has been durable. Washington took Allen with the number 17 pick in the 2017 NFL Draft out of, of course, Alabama. Off him, remember, having been projected to be a top 10, if not top five pick, Allen fell in that 2017 draft due to concerns about having arthritic shoulders and also because he did not have a great performance at the 2017 NFL Scouting Combine. But, you know, those concerns about the arthritic shoulders, uh, those have like disappeared. You know, now Allen in his 2017 rookie season did play in just five games, but that was due to a Liz Frank injury. Allen, over the last three seasons, 2018 through 2020, has played in 47 of a possible 48 regular season games, and he has been productive. Allen, over these last three regular seasons, has totaled 16 sacks and, for pro football reference, 45 quarterback hits. And Jonathan Allen is a leader. And I'm not normally big on stuff like this just because I think it's impossible to know with certainty who is a leader and who isn't, but that doesn't mean that we have no idea. And what I have always appreciated about Jonathan Allen with Washington is that he is accountable. He is dependable. He is a no-drama person. Uh, I believe very much so that Washington internally values Jonathan Allen when it comes to the culture reset under Ron Rivera. And I don't think that Jonathan Allen is one of these phony baloney leaders. I think he's legit. And I love listening to Jonathan Allen speak. There is a no-nonsense nature to him. There is a brutally honest nature to him. That is so refreshing and that you don't often hear. You know, when he speaks, first of all, he never cracks a smile. He's got this constant death stare on his face, but he speaks directly. He speaks concisely, but he speaks very declaratively. In fact, did you hear what Jonathan Allen said on Wednesday? This was great. He got asked about Washington's defensive linemen having to have changed their technique for last season with the switch to the 4-3 base defense. Here is what Allen had to say. I feel like in the media, is made out to be bigger than what it is. As a defensive line, I get paid to whoop people's asses. So it doesn't really matter what scheme I'm in. It could be a 3-4-4-3, Like, it, it really doesn't matter to me. I get paid to stuff the run and rush the pass. And- See, there you go. Vintage Jonathan Allen right there. Direct, to the point, no fluff, no excuses. He gets paid to whoop up on people. I get paid to whoop people's asses. Yeah, I love that. And I know those are just words in June. They mean nothing for what happens September through December. But like I said, I do believe that Jonathan Allen is genuine. I said with Dwayne Haskins after Strippergate last December 
that there was a phoniness to him. There was a lack of authenticity with him that was really off-putting. I get the exact opposite sense from Jonathan Allen. And I want Washington to be aggressive this offseason and trying to get a contract extension with him done. I get paid to whoop people's asses? That's right. All right, we can put it off no more. Montez Sweat and COVIDgate from Wednesday. Montez Sweat is not wanting to get vaccinated for COVID-19. And this was all the rage in the DMV on Wednesday. So let's get into this here right now. So we'll start with this. Ron Rivera at his post-minicamp practice press conference on Wednesday said that all of Washington's coaches and employees have been vaccinated for COVID-19. That right there is notable because there has been some speculation that Jack Del Rio was among those NFL assistant coaches who have not been vaccinated. He apparently has been vaccinated. Here was Ron on Wednesday. We got all our coaches, all our employees in the building, you know, vaccinated. Um, we're slowly getting more and more players vaccinated. You know, it, it's a choice. They've got to make a choice. Um, you know, we're trying to stress the fact that, you know, if we can get to herd immunity, you know, we'll, we'll really be able to get out there and enjoy things. So hopefully that'll happen. Um, you know, but it, it's been good. It really has. It's, it's great to see them in person. I mean, it really is. Uh, and, and, and not have to worry about zooming and, you know, it, it's kind of cool to be able to, you know, to, to, to get up and talk a little bit more. Uh, get to know who they really are as young men. Uh, that to me is important. Um, and it's, it's the same thing for us, getting an opportunity to, to know you guys. You know, we really haven't had that chance either. Um, so it is kind of cool. Uh, it really is. And and I'm pretty excited that we're, we're, we're semi back to normal with, with having OTAs and minicamp. That, that's been a cool experience this year so far. All right. We also on Wednesday learned that Washington had Dr. Kismikia S. Corbett, an immunologist and leading coronavirus vaccine researcher, speak to the team on Tuesday. But also from Ron on Wednesday was him saying that Washington is nearing just a 50% COVID-19 vaccination rate for players. That's it. 50%. Now that's not nothing. I don't want to just completely dismiss 50%, but all things considered, I think that is disappointing. More from Ron. Um, I I think we're, we're nearing the 50% somewhere in there. Um, I know we had a few more get vaccinated yesterday. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to gather as much information, allow the players to get as much information so they can make a choice and make a decision. You know, um, we've, we've tried to accommodate. We, we, we actually got one of the vaccine experts to speak to our players uh, last night. Uh, she was outstanding. Um, our players were engaged, asked a lot of good questions. And, and off of that, we had several guys that uh, are getting vaccinated or have gotten vaccinated because of that. So, you know, again, I, I think the big thing is we've got to be able to facilitate the opportunity for these guys to understand. A lot of guys, you know, there's a lot of messaging that's out there that they get off of Twitter. Um, and and, and <laughs> some of it's good. Some of it's bad. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if these guys watch, you know, television, the news as much as I do. Uh, and try and gather as much information. So we're, we're really trying to help them um, because, you know, again, if we can get to that herd immunity, uh, we can really cut it loose and, and, and really be able to spend time with each other. And so this brings us to Montez Sweat. Sweat at his post-minicamp practice press conference on Wednesday revealed himself to be among those players who have not yet been vaccinated for COVID-19. Here was the reveal, and you'll hear some questions mixed in. I'm not a fan of it. I'm a... Uh... I probably won't won't get vaccinated until until uh, got more facts and all that type of stuff. But no, I'm not a fan of it at all. What is your hesitation with getting the vaccine? If you don't mind me asking. 
Well, I mean, I haven't, I haven't caught, uh, I haven't caught COVID yet. So I don't mean, I don't see me treating the, I don't, I don't see me treating COVID until I actually get COVID. You know, have you talked to the coaching staff about that? And, and, you know, what's the messaging been like from the team? Well, I mean, obviously they want to, um, they want they want to, they want everybody to be vaccinated to, uh, to move more freely around the facility and around as we're traveling and all that type of stuff. But I mean, everybody has their own beliefs and they are entitled to their own decision. All right. So said sweat quote, I'm not a fan of it. I probably won't get vaccinated until I got more facts and that type of stuff, but I'm not a fan of it at all. And quote, when asked about why he's hesitant to get vaccinated for COVID-19, sweat said, quote, I haven't caught COVID yet, so I don't see me treating COVID until I actually get COVID, end quote. So let's put aside for a moment that Sweat didn't exactly come off as having all of the facts with what he said. He, in saying, I don't see me treating COVID until I actually get COVID, didn't seem to get that the vaccine is meant to prevent you from getting COVID-19, or at the very least, minimize the symptoms of COVID-19 if you get it. The vaccine is a proactive measure, not a reactive measure. But again, put that aside. I'm not a big believer in vaccine shaming people, just like I was never a big fan of mask shaming people. We need less judgment in the world, not more, especially for something that has been as confusing and unique as COVID-19. And to that end, if Sweat is confused about COVID-19 or is off on his facts, I actually don't blame him. There has been so much that has been misleading and counterintuitive about COVID-19. You think about all the various steps we've all been through with this pandemic, right? Like something like the lockdowns, okay? The lockdowns were well-intentioned, but the lockdowns may well have done more harm than good, given what we now know about how the virus is spread. You think about Florida and Texas, two states that got vilified, got harpooned, got trashed by so many in the media for aggressively opening up, but in fact, have ended up doing quite well as time has gone on in the COVID-19 pandemic. The media in so many ways has been so wrong about Florida and Texas. It's been embarrassing. You think about something like the origins of COVID-19. It wasn't that long ago that there was like a complete dismissal of this Wuhan lab theory by many in the media as a conspiracy theory of how dare you even suggest that this virus originated from a lab in Wuhan, China. You know, that theory is premature. That theory is baseless. That theory is cuckoo conspiracy talk. And here we are now, and all of a sudden, it's not so crazy. So much so that the Joe Biden White House last month did not dismiss the theory. So yeah, there's been a lot out there. It's been very confusing. I think the media in so many ways has been shameful in how it has covered this pandemic. I think politics on both sides have very much entered into how this pandemic has been covered and talked about. So if Montez Sweat is confused about some things, I don't blame him. I really don't. We've all been confused at various points during this pandemic. Additionally, you can't nor shouldn't make people get vaccinated for COVID-19. There's no doubt, all right, that the data on vaccinations is crystal clear. And and this is not debatable, okay? Vaccines work. Vaccines are safe. Those two things are 100% true. It's why I got my COVID-19 vaccine weeks ago. But again, I'm not a big believer in, you know, pointing the finger of shame at those who do not get vaccinated. Not everyone is aware of these things. I just talked about how the data on vaccines is actually quite clear. Not everyone wants to believe these things. 
that I just talked about. I mean, some of this is ridiculous, okay? Like, it's ridiculous to me that states have tried to essentially bribe people to get vaccinated for COVID-19. Like, is this where we're at, where states have to offer you money, essentially, to get vaccinated for COVID-19? But that's where we are for a variety of reasons. The solution, though, isn't to just, like, condemn these people or make them take shots that these people don't want to take. The solution is more information, accurate information, of course. And so I would hope with this Montez Sweat situation, not that he is shamed, not that he is crushed by the media mob, but just that he is exposed to more facts. Because it sounds like he hasn't been exposed to all the facts, or he just has not had presented to him the various, I think, accurate ways of looking at the COVID-19 vaccine. So I would hope that Ron Rivera, who very clearly is in favor of getting vaccinated, would just have a conversation with Montez Sweat and just try to impress upon him two things in particular, okay? And these are two things that I did not see talked about nearly enough on Wednesday and all the hubbub off what Montez Sweat had to say. The first thing is getting vaccinated for COVID-19 is as much about preventing the virus from mutating as about protecting yourself or others. You know, this thing of, well, if you don't get the vaccine, you're not protecting yourself. Or if you don't get the vaccine, you're not protecting others. There's obviously truth to that. But there's actually, I think, a lot more to the vaccines than just that. And that is, you want to prevent the virus from mutating. I know that Sweat was thought to potentially have a pre-existing heart condition prior to the 2019 NFL draft. So maybe he qualifies as having a pre-existing medical condition But chances are that him getting COVID-19 would result in nothing happening to him. And maybe that would be the case for those around him. But a big part of getting people vaccinated for COVID-19, just like a big part of getting a guy like Montez Sweat vaccinated for COVID-19, would be preventing virus mutation, preventing the virus from continuing to live on from person to person, even if those persons are asymptomatic, and allowing the virus to potentially take on new and deadlier forms. The other thing that if I'm Don Ron, I would say to Montez Sweat is, look, Montez, forget about your health. Forget about the health of others. Forget about the pandemic. Let's just talk football, okay? There are major competitive advantages to the Washington football team having a high vaccination rate. And maybe that's the appeal you have to make here. But that is true. From purely a football perspective, there are major advantages to Washington football team players getting vaccinated for COVID-19. One is the relaxing of COVID-19 protocols. NFL owners and the NFL Players Association on May 26th agreed to relax COVID-19 protocols for fully vaccinated players and staff. The relaxed protocols include fully vaccinated players and staff members not being subjected to daily testing for COVID-19, no mask requirements, for fully vaccinated players and staff members, no mandatory quarantining for fully vaccinated players and staff members if exposed to a COVID-19 positive person. Uh, Also, no travel restrictions in the NFL for fully vaccinated players and staff members if exposed to a COVID-19 positive person. Again, major competitive advantages. Additionally, what about just the idea of a player testing positive for COVID-19 during the regular season and missing a game, or maybe missing more than just one game. No getting vaccinated for COVID-19 doesn't guarantee you not getting COVID-19. Just ask the Nationals' Eric Fetty. But getting vaccinated for COVID-19 does lessen the likelihood of you getting COVID-19 and does lessen the severity of COVID-19 should you get it. So I would just try to impress upon Montez Sweat 
these two things. Again, it's not about shredding Montez Sweat. It's not about calling Montez Sweat a dummy. It's just trying to expose him to all of the proper perspectives. And I just wonder if he has been exposed to those perspectives for whatever reason. Montez Sweat had a very good 2020 season. I am very excited to watch him play in 2021. Remember, Montez Sweat last regular season led Washington in sacks. He was Washington's number one sack man. Nine sacks last regular season. He finished third on Washington in pass defenses with six, third on Washington in forced fumbles with two. His overall grade for pro football focus was 79.7, number 10 among all qualified edge rushers in the NFL. Look, these days you can't talk COVID-19 without everyone injecting their politics into the mix. That is certainly what ended up happening on Wednesday off what Montez Sweat had to say. But at the end of the day, COVID-19 should have never been a political issue. COVID-19 unfortunately became a political issue for a lot of different reasons. I think that's a big part of why there's so much confusion with things and there are so much varying opinion on things. That's just the way things are right now in this country. We have a hard time agreeing on just about anything right now in this country. Ultimately, Montez Sweat should do what he wants to do, but I think there may be some pieces of information missing from how he's thinking about things. All right, time for some non-Jonathan Allen, non-Montez Sweat conversation from day two of the Washington football team's minicamp on Wednesday. The first question that Ron Rivera got asked at his post-practice press conference was an interesting question. What are the big questions for the Washington football team in the upcoming season? Well, I think the, the, the biggest thing, more so anything else, is, is, is going to always start with our depth. You know, we, we feel we've got some quality players at, at, at some of the key positions, so we feel good about that. Um, I think one of the things you'll, you'll see is uh, going to have to be the development of the, um, of, of the rapport between the quarterbacks and the receivers. You know, we're, we're in a new situation. You know, we've got a very competitive quarterback room. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch these guys and see how they develop um, their chemistry with, with, with our, our receivers, our tight ends, our running backs, and, and the offensive line for that matter. One of the reasons that I talk about these press conferences on the podcast is that they are instructive, in addition to at times being quite entertaining. But yes, these press conferences are instructive. They tell us things, either directly or through interpretation. Ron gets asked the question, what are the big questions for your team for the upcoming season? This is not rehearsed. This is not scripted. This is not predetermined. Ron's answer to a question like this is telling, and he brings up what? The depth and the rapport between the quarterbacks and the receivers. Not a shocking answer by any means, but a notable one. Depth has been an undeniable theme to Washington's offseason, right? The building up of depth, especially along the offensive line and that receiver. And bringing up the rapport between the quarterbacks and the receivers speaks to Washington's passing game needing to be much better in 2021 as compared to what the passing game was in 2020. The worst passing game in the NFL. And that's not an opinion. That's statistical fact. Washington's passing game last regular season was dead last in the NFL for Football Outsiders DVOA metric. I think Ron thinks that if Washington's passing game is just like middle of the pack, as opposed to being, again, the worst in the NFL, and everything else just stays the same, Washington will win the NFC East for a second consecutive season. And I think he's right about that if, in fact, he's thinking that. 
A lot of conversation at Ron's post-minicamp practice press conference on Wednesday was about the defense. One of the more definitive things Ron did was praise Matt Ioannidis, the Golden Greek. He, of course, missed most of last season due to a torn left bicep, suffered the injury in the 34-20 loss at the Cleveland Browns in Week 3, was out the rest of the season. That's the thing. Washington's defense demonstrated tremendous improvement last season, despite playing most of the season without the team's best pass-rushing interior defensive lineman. And no doubt, the weak crop of quarterbacks that Washington ended up facing was a significant factor in the defensive improvement. You can't ignore that. But let's be fair and acknowledge that Washington was without a very key defensive player for the final 13 games in the regular season. And then that loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at FedEx Field in the wild card game. Tom Brady picked apart Washington in that game, right? Well, we know Brady's postseason history against teams with quality interior pass rushes. See the two Super Bowl losses to the New York Giants. What might that playoff game against the Bucs have been like had Ioannidis played in it? I'm not saying Washington wins the game, but it would have been interesting to see how that game might have been different had Washington had Ioannidis. Anyway, Ron on Wednesday on what he has seen from Ioannidis so far in minicamp. A lot of growth and development. I mean, you know, we, we missed him last year getting hurt in the third third game of the regular season was, was a blow to our front. I mean, we were good last year. I think we can be better with Matt out there on the football field helping us. Um, and and what you've seen is you've seen him 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 working, doing the extra things, the little things that that help develop your your skill set. Um, and so I'm excited about getting Matt back on the field for us. Yeah, strong words there from Don Ron on Ioannidis, the player who stood out the most in Washington's minicamp practice on Wednesday. Certainly seemed to be corner Benjamin Saint Juice. Washington had two third-round picks in the 2021 NFL Draft. The team's second third-round pick was used on the North Carolina receiver, Dayami Brown. Washington's first third-round pick was used on St. Juice. Washington drafting Benjamin St. Juice completes the Trent Williams trade. Washington acquired the third-round pick that was used to take St. Juice in that Trent Williams trade that was made on day three of the 2020 NFL Draft, Washington dealing our pal Trent Williams to the San Francisco 49ers for a 2020 fifth round pick, which was used on interior offensive lineman Keith Ismail, and a 2021 third round pick that was used on Benjamin St. Juice. And St. Juice on Wednesday was everywhere. And at one point, and this is great, St. Juice jumped up for a 50-50 ball against Terry McLaurin in an end zone, knocked the ball away as McLaurin landed, then stared over McLaurin as the defense erupted in celebration. I love that. St. Juice with no mercy, even for Terry McLaurin. Benjamin St. Juice has an interesting background. He's from Montreal. He went to high school in Montreal, but rose to being a four-star prospect per 24-7 sports, ranked as the number 38 corner overall and number one player in Quebec. I'm not sure how much that means being the number one high school football player in Quebec, but that is something, I guess. Uh, St. Juice began his collegiate career at Michigan, played in his 2017 true freshman season, although in just three games, then redshirted in 2018 due to a hamstring injury. St. Juice then transferred to Minnesota as a graduate transfer in 2019 and played for the Gophers in 2019 and 2020. He is a bigger corner. More on that in a bit. He is a physical corner, and he appears 
to be a smart corner. Ron, on Wednesday, with a really good breakdown of St. Juice. Well, when you watch a guy, pretty much he understands what his leverages are, where, where he needs to put himself in terms of understanding where my help is. If he's got help on the inside, then he knows he's got to position his body to the outside. Um, and that, uh, you know, that type of understanding, that type of feel, that really gives you a chance to be successful because a lot of times guys will, will, will work on the same side as their leverage. And if they do that, what happens is um, the, the receiver will know that, the quarterback will know that, hey, he's not in the right position, and he'll throw the ball away to the other side away from the defender. But now if he knows he's got inside leverage with outside help, you know, he can be in that position. And, 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 and if that quarterback throws the ball outside, then the guy that's outside with the leverage helping him has a chance to make the play. So he's really got a good feel and understanding of that. He's got tremendous vision and understands how to play with vision. He can look through the receiver to the quarterback. He can have one eye on the quarterback and still have a feel for where his receiver is, um, which allows him to have great anticipation, jump and make plays. Um, so he's done a really good job showing us that. He plays the whole play. There, there's, there's no relax in his game. Um, when the ball snapped, he's in position. When he's got to get in phase, he gets into phase. Uh, when he's got to burst, he knows how to burst. Um, and then another thing is he's got some natural, he's got some natural abilities that are created because of his 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 physical stature. He's got long legs, he's got long arms, he's got good strength, he's got good core strength. I mean, he's 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 a pretty good package in terms of. Uh, a, a nice, long, lean corner. And long and lean are good words to use regarding St. Juice. Washington lists him as being 6'3 and 200 pounds. He gives Washington size and length at corner. Two things that the team doesn't have a lot of at corner. Like, you think about Washington's top three corners. William Jackson III is listed by Washington as being six feet tall. Kendall Fuller is listed by Washington as being 5'11". Jimmy Moreland is listed by Washington as being 5'11". Now, that's not to say that Washington has no length at corner, but just in terms of height, Jackson, 6 feet, Fuller, Moreland, each 5'11". St. Juice is 6'3". That's some size at the cornerback position, and hopefully St. Juice adds quality depth at corner. Because size is one thing, but can you play is what matters the most. And we saw signs on Wednesday that Benjamin St. Juice, in fact, can play because this to me is an underrated concern for the upcoming season for the Washington football team depth at corner Washington like every NFL team plays at least five defensive backs on like 65 to 70 percent of defensive snaps Washington largely enjoyed very good health last season regarding the top three corners on the team in Kendall Fuller Ronald Darby and Jimmy Moreland what are the odds that you have that kind of health this coming season for William Jackson III, Kendall Fuller, and Jimmy Moreland. Hopefully, all three guys enjoy great health, but you can't count on that. And you have very little in the way of proven depth at corner beyond those guys. This, to me, is a big part of why Washington signed Bobby McCain. Yes, he has most recently been a free safety, but he has played quite a bit at nickel corner in his career. Ron on Wednesday on St. Juice, potentially adding quality depth at corner. He's the kind of guy that, that, that as he continues to grow and keeps playing, um, we'll see. Um, you know, one thing that I, I, I do always like to talk about is, is consequences. Right now, there's no consequences for gambling. There's no consequences for making, trying to make plays. Now, when you get into the real game action, when things start to matter, uh, are, is the guy going to continue to make plays or is the, the fact that there may be consequences if you don't succeed, now what happens? So, 
you know, right now guys are making plays because there are no consequences. Um, the key is to see how they do again when there are consequences when you're playing in games. Well, speaking of consequences in games and speaking of depth at corner, guess who continues to practice at corner? Troy Apke. Yes, the 2018 fourth round pick out of Penn State. He was, of course, Washington's starting free safety to begin last season. Apke, as Washington's starting free safety, of course, was a fail. He got benched after five games. His overall grade for the 2020 regular season per pro football focus, 53.8. PFF grades are on a scale of 0 to 100. 53.8 for Apke. We have a saying regarding that on this podcast. The saying is courtesy of a former Washington head coach whose name is Steve Spurrier. Not very good. (laughs) Exactly. Ron, remember, saw something in Apke around this time last year. That's why Apke began the 2020 season as Washington starting free safety. Things did not go so well. Washington now is loaded with options at free safety in Bobby McCain, DeShazer Everett, Jeremy Reeves, maybe even Derek Forrest, who Washington took in the fifth round of the 2021 draft out of Cincinnati. Although Forrest, during a Zoom press conference shortly after Washington drafted him on May 1st, did say that he thinks of himself as a strong safety. But of course, what he thinks of himself and what Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio think of Forrest may be two different things. But whatever the case, is there a second life for Troy Apke? with Washington at corner, Ron on Wednesday. Well, it's one of those things that when we talked about personnel and, and moving guys around and putting guys in best position to be successful, you watch Troy and you see this guy that can run. Um, it's got good quickness and anticipation, good play strength. Um, he's a physical guy. Uh, he's you know, got to work on some things, but his quickness, his speed, his short area ability to, to, to redirect, um, is is I think going to work to his benefit, and we think this might be his. This might be one of those things where you've moved a guy into a position, and you know he ends up playing it for a long time. Did you hear what I heard at the end of that cut? Apke playing for a long time. We shall see. I suppose stranger things have happened, but Ron does seem to have an affinity for Troy Apke. We'll see if that ends up being rewarded. How good will Washington's defense be? in the 2021 season. Like I said earlier, I on Wednesday's installment of the podcast in our Chase Young conversation detailed the extent to which Washington's defense was so improved from 2019 to 2020. What will we see in 2021? Chase on Tuesday said that Washington could have an elite defense in the 2021 season. He's not wrong about that, but the key phrase is could have, not currently has. Ron on Wednesday on Chase saying this, and just this overall idea of Washington's defense this coming season potentially being elite. Well, it's like I always tell everybody, it's interesting. It's not that important. You know what I'm saying? So let's just make sure we keep those things in the right types of categories. The only time it's important is when you're on the field. That's when it really truly matters. So um, it's great that they talk about it. It's great that they aspire to do that. But again, that's interesting. Let's make sure we keep the focus on what's truly important. That's our play on the field because uh, this league and these guys will learn this very quickly. It's, it's, it's what have you done for me lately? What have you put on the field? That, that, that's the impact. That's what matters. So, again, it's like I said, it's interesting. It's a great conversation piece. Uh, you guys will bring it up and talk about it, and that's cool. Uh, we understand that, but, um, you know, we want to focus on what we do. 
It's a tricky deal because so many times over the years, we have had a Washington unit, especially a Washington defense, hyped up, and then the defense ends up falling on its face as the ensuing season plays out. We have had people like Ryan Clark and Rob Ryan talk up Washington defenses, and then those defenses end up not being very good. So there is a part of me that's just like, man, I really hope we don't look back upon all this elite defense conversation this offseason and just laugh at the conversation. But the thing is, Washington's defense last season was really good. Like, that's the thing I keep coming back to. The improvement from 2019 to 2020 was real. Washington legitimately last season had a top five defense in the NFL. I know people like to rag on it and say, well, the defense didn't do this and didn't do that. That's fine. But in this day and age in the NFL, with the way that the game is officiated, with the way that offense is done, I don't know that we can have again a truly dominant defense. Like the days of, you know, the 2000 Baltimore Ravens defense, the 2002 Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense, the 2013 Seattle Seahawks defense, the 2015 Denver Broncos defense, those days may well be done. And these days in the NFL, to me, even really good defenses get got. So yes, you can find instances in which the defense gave stuff up. It was not a perfect Washington defense last season, but it was a really good Washington defense last season. The defense wasn't the problem. The passing game was the problem. I keep coming back to this, and I will not get off this until the passing game is appreciably better. But Washington's defense last regular season was top five in the NFL. Like, I'm not exaggerating things when I say that. I went through these rankings on Wednesday's installment of the podcast. But Washington's defense in the 2020 regular season, number three in the NFL in total defense per football outsiders DVOA metric, number four in the NFL in points allowed per game, number four in the NFL in team sack percentage, number six in the NFL in third down defense, number two in the NFL in opponents yards per play, number four in the NFL in red zone defense. That's a top five defense, people. Like, it's okay to say that. So really, statistically speaking, you weren't that far from being a lead last season. Now, yes, the playoff performance against the Bucs was disappointing. No doubt about that. So like I said, it's not a perfect defense, but it was a really good defense. Uh, what about, though, these rankings and the idea of the numbers? You know, does Ron get caught up in the numbers? Here was Ron's answer to that on Wednesday. And you will hear in this answer a not-so-subtle shot from Ron at Pro Football Focus. Here you go. There's a great little saying, figures lie and liars figure. Um, you can pull anything you want out of out of the air and make that stat, make it important. You know, there's a um, there's a, a group out there that, that does all these stats and they put all these stats everywhere and they pull the stats from all over the place. And the thing I found is those numbers they come up with are subjective. Um, they don't know exactly what we're doing or how we're doing it. Uh, they don't know what all the rules are. So when... They grade somebody and they put a put a number out there. Um, you got to be careful uh, because of that. Because again, it's subjective, and, and that's one thing about grading people. It's your opinion. Um, so at the end of the day, when it comes to certain things, there's only certain opinions that truly do matter. So again, just remember, figures lie and liars figure. Yeah, I did get a kick out of that. Don Ron taking some jabs at Pro Football Focus. That very clearly was the group, as Ron called it. Uh, that Ron was referring to in that response. And look, with Pro Football Focus, there are two things you need to differentiate. There are the player grades, and then there are the stats that are compiled. Okay, and those are two different things. The player grades, yes, are not gospel. I say that all the time. The player grades are just an attempt to try to isolate individual performance. It's an imperfect attempt 
because you can never know from the outside looking in exactly what is called upon from each player in each scheme. Although Pro Football Focus in working with all 32 NFL teams does now have a much better grasp on what is being asked of players in various schemes. But yeah, you're never going to bat a thousand on something like that. But it's an attempt to try to isolate individual performance. And I give PFF so much credit for making that attempt. But the other thing with PFF is the accumulation of stats and trying to look at things that matter instead of just the traditional and oh so antiquated stats that NFL.com had for years. You know, it's you're trying to be better. You're trying to be more sophisticated. Instead of ripping on this, you should be encouraging this and applauding this. The NFL has been so behind forever when it's come to analytics. Major League Baseball has been so far ahead of the NFL in analytics. NBA, same thing. NHL, same thing. Finally, the NFL is making some headway on this front. And instead of ripping outlets like Pro Football Focus, we should be commending outlets like Pro Football Focus, in my opinion. And the thing with Ron is he's actually more in on analytics than I think he likes to let on because I've heard him reference analytics. In fact, he did that recently. I noted that in an installment uh, of the podcast. But yeah, he's not wrong in saying that. Like PFF is never going to know player assignments for Washington football team players the way Ron Rivera is going to know those things. Like, clearly, that's the case. Uh, Moving to Washington's offense, the most interesting thing I thought said by Ron regarding the offense on Wednesday actually had to do with Peyton Barber, believe it or not. Uh, Peyton Barber, it turns out, has lost some weight. Here was Ron on that. I think that was done consciously by him. Um, you know, and it's one of the things that when you do talk to guys that are becoming veteran guys in terms of a little older, a little longer in the tooth, one of the things that helped them as far as their career is concerned is, is, is to maintain their weight, to keep it down. Um, you know, it, it helps quicken. It takes a little bit of the stress off of their, their, their knees and ankles and hips and their lower back. Um, they feel better. They feel faster. And you can see it. He's playing fast. He's done a heck of a job for us. And he did a heck of a job for Washington last season. So the 2021 season will be Peyton Barber's age 27 season. Washington in March 2020 signed Barber to a two-year, $3 million contract as an unrestricted free agent. You know, it's funny. When we talk about the bargain basement free agent signings from the 2020 offseason that worked out so well for Washington in the 2020 season, the names that always come up, right, are Ronald Darby, Logan Thomas, J.D. McKissick, Cornelius Lucas, Wes Schweitzer. Peyton Barber's name should come up, too. Peyton Barber had a nice first season with Washington. Now, you can't just go by his yards per carry. Peyton Barber in the 2020 regular season averaged just 2.74 yards on 94 carries, but his season was much better than the yards per carry suggests. Barber rushed for four touchdowns. That's not nothing. Barber was very efficient on short yardage runs. He had 28 carries on plays on which Washington had three or fewer yards to go for a first down or touchdown. 21 of those 28 carries resulted in a first down or touchdown. And how about this? Washington in the 2020 regular season was tied for number seven in the NFL in power success rate per football outsiders at 73%. Here we go with more analytics. Uh, Power success rate is the percentage of successful third and fourth down runs requiring no more than two yards for a first down or touchdown, not adjusted for opponent. Again, Washington, when it came to power success rate last regular season, was tied for seventh in the NFL. Peyton Barber was a big part of that. For years, 
Washington had not been good on short yardage runs. That's actually changed the last few seasons. Adrian Peterson helped to improve that over his two seasons with Washington. But Peyton Barber, I thought, was really good in short yardage circumstances in the 2020 season. Run on Wednesday, though, on if there is a concern for Barber being not as good in short yardage situations this coming season as he was last season due to the weight loss. No, no, because he's stronger. Um, he's worked at it, too. So the trade-off is, you know, he's probably lost a little bit of the baby fat and it's gotten a little bit leaner. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm believing I'm not concerned about his, 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 his short yardage running because one thing he does, he runs with leverage. He runs with good body lean. Um, and I, I, I don't think it's going to impact his, his ability to run inside that much. Yeah, I'll tell you two other things about Peyton Barber. He takes care of the football, and he has been remarkably durable. Peyton Barber, over his five NFL seasons, 2016 through 2020, has just four fumbles over 645 career regular season carries. That's something else. Four fumbles over 645 career regular season carries. And Peyton Barber does not miss games. He, over his five NFL seasons, has played in 79 of a possible 80 regular season games. So the next time you hear someone bash Peyton Barber, remind that person of the things we just talked about. Very efficient was he on short yardage runs last season. Part of an overall Washington running game that was terrific on short yardage runs last season. He never fumbles, and he's been incredibly durable. There's a reason that Peyton Barber was signed to a two-year contract. And you think about Washington at running back, when is the last time the team had what it is set up to have for the upcoming season? The top three running backs from the previous season being back as the top three running backs for the upcoming season. I can't remember the last time Washington had that, and yet you're set up to have that with Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and Peyton Barber. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, it wasn't easy. It certainly wasn't quick, but it was a win, a rare win for the Nationals, a 9-7, 11-inning win at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays on Wednesday night for a two-game split in the series. The Nats winning for just the fourth time in 13 games. The Nats improving to 25-33. and 33. Wins aren't happening often for the Nats these days, so let's enjoy this from Davey Martinez. I'm proud of the boys. 
Yes, thank you, Davey. You should be proud of your boys, although your boys nearly blew it in this game. But the Nationals ultimately get the job done. 9-7 in 11 innings at the Rays. A game that took four hours, 19 minutes. A game in which the Nationals blew a 5-3 7th inning lead. A game in which the Nats blew a 7-5 10th inning lead. A game in which the Nationals struck out 18 times. Yeah, there was a lot not to like about this game from a Nationals perspective. But this also was a game in which the Nationals offense was awake. It's nice to see this. It's nice to know this, that the Nationals offense can, in fact, put forth a professional effort. And yeah, the 18 strikeouts were brutal, but the Nats in this game also had 10 hits, including three homers and three doubles, worked five walks, went three of 10 with runners in scoring position. Ryan Zimmerman was huge in this game, two for four with two homers and a walk. He had a one-out six-pitch walk in the top of the first, despite having been down in the count of 1.12. A one-out opposite field solo homer to right field in the top of the third, and a two-run homer on a bomb to left field in the top of the fifth. You know, Zimmerman had been struggling. He entered the game 0 for 10 with five strikeouts over his previous four games. With how good Zimmerman has been this season, that qualifies as a slump. Well, he's slumping no more, and Zimmerman now on the season has a 295 batting average, a 327 on base percentage, and a 590 slugging percentage. That's what stands out more than anything. The guy is slugging nearly 600 on the year. Two more homers to go with a walk on Wednesday night. Juan Soto hit a homer on Wednesday night. Also had himself two walks. Uh, Soto with a one-out two-run shot to dead center in the top of the first. The home run going a projected 423 feet per stat cast. He also had a leadoff six-pitch walk in the Nats' two-run fifth and a leadoff intentional walk in the Nationals' two-run tenth inning. But the homers from Zimmerman and Soto came relatively early in the 11-inning game. What fueled the Nats late in the game were some big clutch hits by some bottom half of the lineup guys. Among those guys, Starlin Castro. Yes, the darling of the Nationals. Uh, I've been very hard on Starlin Castro this season. I think it's been justified. He's not been very good this season, but he had a big hit on Wednesday night. He finished with two hits. Uh, He had a single in the game, a one-out single in the top of the second, but he also had a leadoff first pitch RBI double in the Nationals' two-run 11th inning. A huge hit for the Nationals, the hit coming off the Rays reliever, Diego Castillo. Look, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how else to say it. He hasn't had many big hits this season. He hasn't had many extra base hits this season. You get two in one, a two-for-one combo there. The two-for-one Castro combo there with that leadoff first pitch ribby double in the Nationals two-run 11th inning. Now, he did strike out twice in the game. Uh, struck out on six pitches with runners on second and third and two outs in the top of the third. And then he had a bizarro strikeout in the top of the eighth, striking out on four pitches with a runner on first and two outs, flinging his bat off the mound in the swing and miss for strike three. He didn't do that on purpose, but the bat went flying on that swing and miss for strike three. But nice job by Castro coming through with that ribby double and a really nice job by Jan Gomes. So nice to see Gomes back in this series off him missing all three games in that Nats series loss at the Philadelphia Phillies over the weekend. Gomes on Wednesday night, he was the Nats' number five batter, one for five with a big RBI single. Tie-breaking, one-out RBI single on an 0-2 pitch in the Nats' two-run 
10th inning. Now, it was not a great night defensively for Gomes. Nats had a hard time controlling the Rays' running game. That's not all Gomes' fault, but he did commit a throwing error in trying to throw out Taylor Walls on his stolen base in the bottom of the fourth. Rays went 3-3 on runners trying to steal in the game. But Castro, big hit. Gomes, big hit. Zimmerman, two homers. Soto with a homer. It was a professional effort, it felt like, from the Nationals offensively. Now, another thing with this game that really stood out offensively, Davey Martinez's lineup tinkering continued. That's nothing new. It's just comical the extent to which every game the lineup is different. Like Kyle Schwarber, I mentioned this on Wednesday's installment of the podcast. He was the leadoff batter. He was the number one batter in the 3-1 loss at the Rays on Tuesday night. That lasted for one game. Uh, Schwarber was back down to being the number six batter on Wednesday night. Went one for three with a single, a walk, and an RBI. Had a two-out full count walk, top of the third. One-out single and the top of the eighth. And a one-out first pitch, RBI sack fly in that Nats two-run 10th inning. How about Josh Bell? He was a starting DH in both games in the series, but he was the number seven batter on Wednesday night. He got dropped down, did though have an extra base hit, had a two-out double on a one-two pitch in the top of the third, but he finished one for five with three strikeouts. And then Castro, he was the number eight batter in both games in this series. So some significant lineup changes from Davey over the two games at the Rays. Uh, Again, this could all change with the next game. We'll see. But uh, that was notable to me with the Nationals' offense in the series. Now, also with the Nats' 9-7, 11-inning win at the Rays on Wednesday night was the bullpen. Another game in which way too much was asked of the bullpen. Nationals' relievers combined to allow four runs, three earned, in six innings. And what stands out as much as anything in that line is the six innings. Yes, it was an 11-inning game. But again, the Nationals' starting pitcher doesn't provide nearly enough in terms of innings. Patrick Corbin was an at starter, three runs and five innings. That's it. You only got five innings from Patrick Corbin. Now, he did settle down and end up doing well as his outing went on, but he got off to such a bad start and his pitch count ended up being way too high. Corbin allowed three runs in recording just one out. I mean, he looked like he was getting shelled and then he was better. He ended up tossing four and two-thirds scoreless innings over the remainder of his outing. But Corbin was a complete mess in giving up three runs in the bottom of the first. He issued three consecutive walks to begin the bottom of the first. He, during that stretch, threw three strikes versus 12 balls. He could not find the plate to save his life in the initial stages of that three-run raise first. Corbin then gave up a bases-loaded two-run single to Randy Arozarena, then gave up an RBI sack fly to Mike Brasso. Now, like I said, Corbin then was better as the outing went on, but ultimately, he wasn't good enough. He wasn't nearly good enough, especially for a guy in the midst of a six-year, $140 million contract. Corbin, three runs and five innings on just three hits, all of which were singles, but four walks versus three strikeouts. He threw 93 pitches. I mean, 93 pitches in five innings, but check out the strikes versus balls ratio. 50 strikes versus 43 balls. A near one-to-one ratio of strikes to balls for Corbin on Wednesday night. This was another bad game. I I don't care that he threw the four and two-thirds scoreless innings after giving up the three runs. That's not the point. You don't just get to cherry pick which part of a start counts. Like It all counts, and what it ended up being was not good enough. Patrick Corbin now has allowed 18 runs in 26 innings on 32 hits and 12 walks over his last five starts. Patrick Corbin now, on the season over 12 starts, has an ERA of 621, has a whip of 151. It's not good enough. 
and so the bullpen had to be leaned on a bunch again. Kyle Finnegan allowed a run in one and a third innings. He looked sharp in tossing a perfect bottom of the sixth with two strikeouts, was allowed to begin the bottom of the seventh despite Daniel Hudson warming up. Davey Martinez clearly trying to get some mileage out of Finnegan. What happened? Didn't work out. Finnegan gave up a leadoff homer to Taylor Walls, then recorded a very loud out on a deep flyout by Brett Phillips. Then Hudson came into the game. He ultimately allowed one run in one and two-thirds innings. He got the final two outs in the bottom of the seventh and retiring two of the three batters he faced, but Hudson in the bottom of the eighth gave up a game-tying one-out pinch solo homer to Joey Wendell. So here you go. Finnegan gives up a run. Hudson gives up a run. The Nats bullpen these days is giving up runs, and Hudson has really come back down to earth. Hudson now, over his last five appearances, has allowed five runs in six into third innings on seven hits and two walks. And even that doesn't tell the whole story because included in that mix is Hudson in a 5-3 win at the Atlanta Braves on June 2nd, allowing two inherited runners to score in the bottom of the seventh. So that doesn't count against his ERA. Those runs don't count against Hudson's runs allowed. But that was not a good outing for Hudson either. He's not pitching well. And I don't really blame him for this. He'd been so good He's been used way too much. He's an older pitcher. He doesn't exactly have a sparkling track record. He's had some good seasons, but he's also had some bad seasons. And he's really come crashing back down here over these last few weeks. And then Brad Hand was an ads pitcher, and he got got. Two runs, one earned in two innings. He tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth with three strikeouts, but he also issued two walks, one of which was intentional to preserve the five-all tie. But Hand then allowed two runs in the bottom of the 10th on a leadoff RBI triple by Randy Rosarena, followed by an RBI single by Joey Wendell. Tanner Rainey was called upon to close out the game, and he did do just that. Uh, He was basically the only option left for Davey Martinez with the way this bullpen has been taxed, but Rainey did do a good job scoreless bottom of the 11th inning. But you know, it was just a few days ago that the Nats had an off day, were able to reset the bullpen, and here you are right back into bullpen debt. The 3-1 loss at the Rays on Tuesday night, Nats had to use five relievers in the game to cover four into third innings. This 9-7, 11-inning victory on Wednesday night, Nats have to use four relievers to cover six innings in the game. You're right back to your relievers operating on fumes, and this all begins with the national starting pitching not being good enough so far this season, and guys not named Max Scherzer not going deep enough into games, especially with Steven Strasburg on the 10-day injured list. You need more, a lot more, from especially Patrick Corbin, and you're just not getting it. Now, I mentioned Strasburg. A very concerning update from Davey Martinez came on Wednesday in Davey's pregame Zoom press conference, and that was this. Steven Strasburg isn't even throwing right now. He has been restricted to lower body exercises. The team still isn't sure what's causing the nerve irritation in Strasburg's neck. Uh, Davey said that there's a good chance that Strasburg will be seeing another specialist. When the Nats put Strasburg back on the 10-day injured list on June 2nd, I said, all right, we're not seeing Strasburg until at least after the All-Star break. I am now even more convinced of that. And I'm not sure when we're going to see Strasburg, that the Nats don't know what's going on here. I mean, I don't have to tell you that that's not a good sign. And it doesn't mean that this is something super serious, but it does mean that it's not something super obvious. And that's concerning because until you know what the ailment is, you can't properly treat the ailment beyond, hey, just rest up, you know, like it'll heal magically on its own. And that can happen, but I'm not about to be counting on that happening, especially with this being Strasburg's second stint on the 10-day injured list on the season. Uh, so not good news with Strasburg from Davey on Wednesday. 
Uh, email from Stephen Robertson. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Do you think the Strasburg contract could be worse than the Orioles contract with Chris Davis? This is looking like it could be problematic for the Nationals. Keep the music. So another fan of the intro song for the Al Galdi podcast is Stephen Robertson. Thank you for that. Well, great question. Strasburg contract versus the Davis contract. Could the Strasburg contract end up being worse? Yeah. Yeah, it could be. Now, we're not there yet, okay? But yes, this is a possibility. Strasburg would have to be oft injured and or really bad for multiple seasons to come. But keep in mind, the Chris Davis deal is only, and I put only in quotation marks, a seven-year, $161 million contract. The Strasburg deal is a seven-year, $245 million contract. Many more millions of dollars have been committed to Strasburg than have been committed to Davis. Again, Davis, seven for 161, Strasburg, seven for 245. And at least the initial season of the Davis deal wasn't that bad. Strasburg hasn't been able to pitch with any kind of consistency so far as we're in year two of his seven-year $245 million deal. He literally cannot stay healthy. That's a problem. That's a huge problem for the Nationals with the Strasburg contract. Well, next up for the Nats is an 11-game homestand, which sets up to be a very special homestand with full capacity about to be allowed at Nationals Park. And it's a juicy homestand in terms of the competition in two of the three series. You have a four-game series against the San Francisco Giants, then a three-game series against the lowly Pittsburgh Pirates, but then a four-game series against the New York Mets. The San Francisco Giants, understand this, are the best team in baseball as you and I speak on this Thursday. The Giants are a major league best 38 and 23, have a run differential of plus 74. The Mets, of course, are first in the National League East. So you're going to be facing the best team in baseball and the best team in your division upcoming on this 11 game homestand. And that's starting pitchers over the four games against the Giants. Max Scherzer on Thursday. TBA for Friday, but we do believe that will be Eric Fetty. Joe Ross on Saturday. John Lester on Sunday. Game one is set for Thursday night at 7.05. Weather could be a problem, but the pitching matchup, Max Scherzer versus Anthony DiSclefani. DiSclefani's having a pretty good season. 3.51 ERA over 12 starts. Scherzer, of course, though, is having an excellent season. Max Scherzer comes into this game one against the Giants with an ERA at 2.22, whip a 0.82, and 104 strikeouts versus 15 walks over 12 starts. He has provided innings for the Nationals this season. Everyone else in that Nats rotation, not so much. Well, so much for the Orioles' surging offense. The O's off totaling 28 runs over the team's previous two games, scored just one run on Wednesday night, and the O's themselves were the victims of a double-digit run onslaught. A 14-1 loss to the National League East leading New York Mets at Oriole Park at Camden Yards for a two-game split in the series. O's fell to an American League worst 22-39 and with a run differential tied for worst in the American League at minus 59. But while the Orioles' offense was not good on Wednesday night, the Orioles' pitching was worse. Matt Harvey struggled again. The ex-Met got shredded by his former team once again this season. Harvey in this game on Wednesday night, a game at which there were many Mets fans. Bad, really bad, smashed, in fact, 
for a fifth time in six starts. Harvey allowed seven runs in three innings on eight hits, which were two homers, two doubles, and four singles, and a walk versus two strikeouts on 61 pitches. Matt Harvey now, over his last six starts, has allowed 31 earned runs in 19 and two-thirds innings. This off him over his first seven starts, having had an ERA of 360. The Matt Harvey story had been a nice story, a fun story. The reclamation project, Matt Harvey making the Orioles out of spring training, making the Orioles as the team's number two starting pitcher out of spring training. And yes, so much of that was a function of the Orioles being a tanking team. But still, Matt Harvey looked halfway decent and everything has changed over the last month or so. Matt Harvey now on the season over 13 starts, has an ERA of 741, has a whip of 168. And the way I have framed the Orioles in a tanking scenario having Matt Harvey has been, well, you have Matt Harvey in order to fix him and then flip him. The idea with Matt Harvey has never been he's going to be here for years to come. You know, he's a building block for the future. The idea with Matt Harvey has been he used to be good. Maybe, just maybe, you can make him into being good again. And then you trade him and you get back some more prospects for the rebuild. But here's the deal with Matt Harvey now, and I've said this for a few weeks. If you can't fix him, then you can't flip him. And if you can't flip him, then there's no point in having him. And as time goes on here, it's becoming apparent that there may be no fixing Matt Harvey. And look, Matt Harvey's had a great attitude about things. If you watch his post-game Zoom press conferences, he demonstrates accountability. He takes ownership of his struggles. He's very blunt about his struggles. So none of this is like personal or anything like that. Matt Harvey has not been an attitude problem or anything like that. But he's been really bad here. And this is not someone who you're grooming for the future. It'd be one thing if Matt Harvey was, you know, a Keegan Aiken type, a Dean Kramer type. You say, well, we're trying to see if this guy can be something. So let's let him work through his struggles. No, Matt Harvey has already been a something. And I just don't see the purpose here moving forward with him in the rotation. Now, Brandon Hyde, during his postgame Zoom press conference on Wednesday night, made it clear that Harvey, for now, is not coming out of the Orioles' rotation. I don't know if Hyde said this to protect Harvey when, in fact, the opposite is the case, or if Hyde was sincere with what he said. But Hyde said there's no talk of taking Harvey out of the rotation. If that's really true, I don't get that at all. What is this commitment to Matt Harvey? What is the point here? The Orioles have the worst record in the American League. The Orioles, again, are tanking. Uh, I don't get the idea trying to let Matt Harvey work through his struggles. Uh, I don't know that there's any fixing Matt Harvey. And if you can't fix him, you can't flip him. And if you can't flip him, then there's no point in having him. It really is remarkable, though, how he has just fallen apart. It's sad. You know, I don't like seeing this happen to someone. And really, he's gotten ravaged by the Mets, by his former team. The former Dark Knight of Gotham has gotten ripped by the Mets this season. His initial start against the Mets this year came in a game at the Mets on May 12th, a 7-1 Orioles loss. Harvey in that game, seven runs in four and a third innings. His only decent outing here lately was that game that he had in the 6-3 win over the Minnesota Twins at Camden Yards on June 2nd. Harvey in that game started on three days rest for the first time in his career due to the O's having played in a doubleheader the previous Saturday. And Harvey, in essentially serving as an opener, did well. One run in three innings, three strikeouts. But that's about it lately in terms of Matt Harvey doing well. One other thing from this 14-1 Orioles loss to the Mets at Camden Yards on Wednesday night, Cedric Mullins, another sensational catch. What a season this guy is having. So he had a single in the game. 
but he also had a five-star catch in the game, a diving catch in left center off running to his right to rob the former Oriole, Jonathan Villar, of an extra base hit for the first out of the game. This was an especially impressive catch when you consider that the ball was slicing off the bat of the lefty batting Villar. Mullins entered games on Wednesday, number three in the majors among qualified center fielders in defensive runs saved at plus three. That's the thing with Mullins this year. It's not just that he's hit out of his mind. It's that he has fielded out of his mind. He has been an all-around player for the Orioles so far this year. He 100% deserves to be an all-star. No game for the O's on Thursday. They on Friday begin a seven-game road trip with game one of a three-game series at the American League-leading Tampa Bay Rays, who, of course, just got done with the Nats. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Friday's installment of the podcast, we put a bow on the Washington football team's mandatory minicamp, which ends on Thursday. Who knows what will transpire on Thursday? Who knows what will develop on Thursday? Who knows who will say what about COVID-19 vaccines? on Thursday, but we'll have a lot to talk about on Friday's show, including the Nationals. Game one for them on Thursday night, weather permitting against the San Francisco Giants, the major league leading Giants with Max Scherzer pitching for the Nats and full capacity being allowed at Nationals Park. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. I feel like in the media is made out to be bigger than what it is as a defensive line. I get paid to whoop people's asses. 